0: All right, everybody, come on in and take a seat. Now you see why I'm such a holy guy. She's been preaching this way to me all my life. And I think... She's done a wonderful job this morning, don't you? And things that need to be heard need to be preached. Amen. I was telling Richard back there earlier that uh, a lot of places we go, we're considered old-fashioned because we stand for these standards. But if I'm old-fashioned, leave me alone because it's working. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. And I trust that you understand that these messages... That Carolyn's sharing She's put a lot of prayer behind this A lot of hours before the presence of the Lord And she does not have any desire whatsoever To bring any condemnation But truth is truth And it's time to quit sweeping truth under the rug Because it may not be popular Well I'm not looking to be popular I'm looking to hear Well done thou good and faithful servant Amen Amen So, are you ready for part two? All right, let's welcome Carolyn once again.
1: Hallelujah. Thank you.
2: Okay, you really need to pray with me because do you see how much I have left? (laughs) And how much I've done? And I only have a little bit of time to get all that in. So it has to be by the Holy Ghost, what I say and what I leave out and what we, okay. And uh, I'm going to give birth to twins this morning. I have decided that. (laughs) Lindsay said it was twins. So, okay. Father, I call upon you and I need you today to help me deliver this word as you want it delivered. Give me the ability. Give me the strength. Give me the correct words at the right time. I thank you for it. I yield myself to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You would have to know me. I'm one of the kind of people that like to always be in the background. I never want to be up front. I never want to be seen. I never want to do the talking. I just want to support the man of God. And this has been so heavy on me that when Jerry asked me to do this, when did you ask us a year ago, I guess? And uh, I said, no, no, you find somebody else. No, no. But then when I got to talking to Lindsay and this, this burden, and that's what I call it is a burden that came up on me. I said I have to do it. I have to share it. I I have to share what's in my heart, you know. And it's not out of anger and it's not out of it's out of love Amen. because I want us all to make it to heaven.
1: Amen.
2: And all those that are under us and that follow us and all that you're responsible to. So that's where it's coming from a heart of love. I want to talk about separating yourself. An important teaching in the Bible is about believers being separated from sin and the ungodly activities of the world as much as possible. It's also uh, taught all throughout the Old Testament. God's people, particularly Israel, were to keep their distance from the heathen so they would not be exposed or tempted by the ungodly involvement in sin. In the New Testament, early believers were also warned to remain as far as possible away from unfruitful, ungodly works of unrighteousness. Sin spreads and it's contagious. And that is one of the reasons God wanted his people out of the grasp of wickedness. Ephesians 5.11 And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. Reprove them. For centuries, separation from sin and even the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Were preached from most pulpits and practiced by most people. Christians lived differently, they spoke differently, they dressed differently, they believed differently, they acted and thought differently. They were ashamed, as were their families, when they were involved in sin, or even imitated the lifestyle of the unsaved. A different way of living does not save anyone, though. Not cursing, chewing, hanging around with those that do. It's a good practice, but it will not save you. However, when a person acknowledges their sin, realizes the price they will ultimately pay for sin, accepts Christ's payment for their sin, and accepts Him as Savior, that person is saved from the penalty of sin. That person is changed on the inside. But changes on the inside should soon follow on the outside. And that's where we're missing it. Change, they change instantly on the inside, but changes should soon follow on the outside. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away and behold, all things are become new. The new creature should want to live the way the Lord wants him to live. As the child's Sunday school song reminds us, the things I used to do, I don't want to do them anymore. Do you remember singing that song growing up? The new saved person will produce godly fruits, actions that are pleasing to the Lord, not because he has to do them to keep his salvation, but because his new heart will want to do them for the Lord. A saved person should want to please his Savior. For we were sometimes darkness, sometimes in darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Reprove, run away from them as fast as you can. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. The new-hearted Christian should realize that the way he used to live was not pleasing to the Lord. To please the Lord, he should want to separate himself from sin and the temptation of sin. In Christians today, this thinking and lifestyle are foreign to them and even ridiculed. You would be hard-pressed in most churches and Christian households to be able to tell any difference between those that are Christians and those that are unsaved. Church leaders and believers spend more time excusing, justifying, and explaining their worldly thinking and lifestyle, than they do remembering one of God's most important commandments to his believers is to live holy. Amen. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. I remember a few years ago, Fort Worth Convention, a whole group of, of young, they weren't teenagers, they were in their early 20s attending the Fort Worth Convention every single day and night, got in their car and went to... Um, Where's our cat? Austin. Went to Austin to go clubbing. You know, one of the nights they decided to just take off from the convention, but they're gonna go clubbing for all night. Hop into all the clubs in Austin, you know, the college group down there. This this shouldn't be. And do you know why where they won't turn the lights off in the churches? And make it dark inside here? Why? Sin. You shine the light on darkness, and sin's gonna be exposed. That's why their churches have turned all their lights off. Because they're seeing inside the church. And they don't want you to see it. That's why it's dark in the sanctuary. Kind of cover up. I don't feel so exposed if it's dark in here. Maybe the person over there can't can't detect that I've been out. You know. Amen. So we get it dark, looking like a nightclub in the church. All right. I'll stop. God has not changed one bit since he had the world, had the words written in Leviticus 27. No matter how those of us are living and believing, a Christian is always to live a godly life as he can. We are on God's winning side and we are to live like it. We're not to live like the losing ungodly side. The Bible tells us much about living a separated godly life. From the beginning, God did some separating. God put a separation between the unrighteous world and Noah and his family. When he sent the flood, the ungodly perished. In the Old Testament times, God repeatedly warned his people to separate from the ungodly so they would not end up doing the sin the enemies of God were committing. Depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that beareth the vessels of the Lord. Flee out of the midst of Babylon, a sinful nation, and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her recompense. God was going to judge the sinful nation. He did not want his people to be included in the punishment he was going to inflict on the ungodly. God says, get away from the world and do not, do not let the sinful or the activities they do enter you. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. One example, Christ lived a separated life. We claim to be Christ-like, which is what Christian means. So we also should live a separated life. For such as a high priest becomes us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Hebrews 7:26). When a Christian lives the way God commands, the ungodly will separate from him. Godly living convicts the ungodly. And rather than change their way of living, they often will alienate themselves from the source of their feeling guilty. So many Christians that do not live a separated life never make any difference to those around them as their lifestyle is not a godly example. Some of these ministers today that are ministering to Kanye West and ministering to Justin Bieber and then are ministering to some of these others, they've they've become just like them. You know, they're no different than they are. You know, so, you know, you can't be like them. You're supposed to be winning them and changing them, not them changing you. Okay. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and shall cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So the majority of Christians fell in the area of separation. Most often they will not separate themselves from things of this world and separate themselves unto God. They want the comfort of knowing they will go to heaven, but their sincerity is lacking. They will not separate from the places they should not go. They want to dress like and look like and act like the world. Their desire is to fit in like everyone else. I don't care. You can call me a relic. You can call me a fossil. You can call me anything you want to call me. I really don't care. I know I'm going to heaven. You know. Today, like I said, Christians are more interested in fitting into the world than they are in fitting in with God and letting him make them as holy as he can. It would be more helpful for Christians if they had the attitude, I'm a Christian, the Bible shows me to do something without question, I will do it. If the world thinks I'm peculiar, then that's their problem. As far as me and my house, we will be separated from the world and its many questionable behaviors. Do you know my husband, he loves root beer, not beer. So don't somebody delete it and say, my husband likes beer. He likes root beer. So everywhere he goes, churches, they put root beer in, in his gift boxes and sacks and stuff, you know. And uh, he won't even go to the store and put it in his buggy because he doesn't want to see anybody. To even, they'd be way across the room and say, Brother Jerry, I saw him with beer in his buggy. He wants to shun the very appearance of evil. He doesn't want to bring it home from these churches where he goes and speaks so many times because it actually does look like bottles of beer. I have four bottles right now in the refrigerator for for my guest, for Jerry and for Richard. Richard, I'm sorry, I forgot the Dr. Pepper. But, uh, (laughs) But... he is shuns the very appearance of evil. He doesn't want this that's stuff. Right, he, do, he doesn't want to cause anybody to stumble. Come on. He doesn't want anybody to fall. Just even from the, you know, sometimes even water they're making now looks like champagne. And he comes home from these churches with these big old, I've never even seen them. I don't even know where they're by them. Bottles of water that look like champagne. And I'm saying, okay, I hope nobody saw you with that. You know, and think you're carrying home a <laughs> bottle of champagne. But, you know, shun the very appearance of evil. We had an old prophet of God. It's not even in my notes and stuff. But old prophet of God, Brother Lee Spivey, years ago that told Brother, told Jerry. Shun the very appearance of evil. He said, Jerry, when you go someplace, when you get out, you don't leave your windows down. He said, you roll your windows up and you lock your car the instant you get out. He said, because you never know. Somebody may throw something in your car, and it's not yours, and you could never prove it to the pastor or whoever that that wasn't yours. Do you know that actually happened to my husband? Where was this on a trip? Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, Florida. He pulled up to a front of, front of a Holiday room. Inn. To,
0: to get my room, and I left my windows down. And when I walked out, somebody had thrown a Playboy magazine in my front seat. And I... If somebody had been there that knew I was in that meeting and they saw that, I never could have proved that it, it wasn't mine. So I locked my doors even at my house.
2: You guys, he does. In our garage, he locks our doors at our house because of that event. But the prophet of God had told him, roll your windows up and lock your doors. And there it was. Somebody coming out of that hotel just threw it in the front seat of that car. I know my husband. He's the godliest man on the face of the earth that I know. You know. So, shun the very appearance of evil. It's questionable. And you have a question in your heart, you know it's wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it. All right, very quickly. I, I want to talk about building our foundation. Proverbs 9 10. Oh my gosh, this, I got this revelation this past week, and I went running into the bedroom on Saturday, I believe it was. And I said, Jerry, Jerry, we've missed this. We've missed this. We're a whole body of Christ that has missed this. Okay. <laughs> the fear of the Lord. Is the beginning of wisdom The fear of the Lord is the beginning Stuart The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom There's no fear in the church For the consequences of the sin That people are committing We have not taught fear I have not heard a sermon on fear I haven't heard a sermon on fear In 60 60 years or more Have have y'all? Has anybody heard a sermon on fear? I'm not talking about the fear, we'll get to it in a minute. Brother Copeland's talking about no fear here. That's doubt, unbelief. I'm talking about a reverential awe and a respect and a all right, let me get into it, okay? Just so I can't hardly wait. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The uncompromising righteous have an everlasting foundation, Proverbs tells us. Therefore, let us go on and get past the elementary stage in the teachings and doctrines of Christ the Messiah, advancing steadily towards the completeness or perfection that belongs to the spiritually mature. Let us not again be laying the foundation of eternal judgment and punishment. We're having to lay this foundation right now. There is eternal punishment and there is judgment. I've not heard one sermon in 60 years on eternal punishment and judgment. So we're going to have to lay the foundation now. Our whole generation. nobody, Nobody's heard about there's hell. And you're going to go to it. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And change your way. Yeah. That means I'm going this way and acting this way. And to be born again means I'm making a face. And I turn and go in the opposite direction. So the foundation, the foundation is eternal judgment and punishment. When you build a house, your concrete foundation, that's what everything else stands on. That's what your whole Christianity stands on. That's your boundaries. That's your borders. Eternal judgment and punishment is our foundation. When I looked at this, I thought, well, what is the foundation that needs to be laid for Christians? The foundation is the first thing that has to be done when you're building a house. Without a firm foundation in the truth of eternal judgment and punishment prevents us from building a proper and healthy life in Christ. We're not going to have a healthy life in our relationship. Do we know anything about eternal judgment and punishment? I don't think we do, especially this generation has not heard anything about eternal judgment and punishment. Um, it would be compared to attempting to advance your education without the basic tools required in elementary school, such as the ability to read or two plus two equals four. Why is that so? In careful study of the gospels, you'll notice that Jesus spoke of hell and described it three times more than he did heaven. I didn't even know this until I started studying this. Jesus spoke of hell three times more than he did heaven. He did this to build a foundation within us the fear of God. And here's one example of what he said. Jesus said, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetop for all to hear. Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill you. They can only kill the body. They cannot do any more to you. But I'll tell you whom to fear, fear God who has the power to kill people and then throw them into hell. Luke 12:35. His words are accurate and they are exact. We must have an understanding of eternal judgment and punishment that firmly establishes us, establishes us and keeps us and keeps the fear of the Lord in our hearts. Allow me to explain. It gives us boundaries or borders. What is a river without boundaries? It's a flood. A flood causes destruction and devastation. Only God can give the internal sentence of hell. What we have spoken in secret will be made manifest by the light of his glory at the judgment. Now I said, what I read, God is the one who gives the internal sentence of hell. Not only our words, but motives, attitudes, and works will be manifest. The fear of God keeps us continually aware that nothing can be hidden from Him. Nothing we do can be hidden from Him. Even the most secret things. And when we know nothing can be hidden from Him, even the most secret things, and we know nothing will escape His judgment, and His judgment is just, if we lack this understanding, we can become deceived into believing God overlooks or even doesn't even see lawlessness. And we can take comfort in an unscriptural mercy that doesn't exist. I read, and I didn't finish those statistics earlier, but I read that 68% of Christian men are watching pornography. 68% are watching pornography. Not the world, those in the church. Everything you do in secret... Whatever you've said in the dark and what you've whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetop. Whatever you do in secret will be revealed at judgment day. Don't you want to say, oh, God, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. You don't know all the forgiveness I've been praying out for everything under the sun in the last few weeks. Lord, forgive me of that. Forgive me of thinking that. Forgive me of saying that. Lord, forgive me of this. I mean, forgive me. My mother was with me, and she preached to me night and day and day and night and day and night. Oh, dear God, I get so tired of hearing my mother preach. Am I my mother's daughter? (laughs) And I'd have to go away and say, Lord, forgive me. I repent. I repent. Forgive me. Forgive me for criticizing her. Forgive me for judging her. Forgive me for hearing the same thing over and over and over. I am my mother's daughter. Oh, I've had to repent about so many things in the last few weeks. Lord, I don't want that sin exposed. I don't know who I did that in darkness. I don't want that exposed in the light for all the world to see on Judgment Day. Forgive me. Oh, I've had to do a lot of repenting the last few weeks. His words are accurate and exact. We must have understanding of eternal judgment and punishment. That firmly establishes us and keeps the fear of the Lord in our hearts. And when I saw this, I was reading it, only God can give the eternal sentence. The fear of the Lord keeps us continually aware that nothing can be hidden from him, even the most secret things. And when we know nothing can be hidden from him, even the most secret things, and we know nothing will escape his judgment, and his judgments are just, and all of that. I was trying to get to my notes where Lindsay said to me, she said, Carolyn, I look at it this way. They had to go out and do a little TV, little TV live thing right now. So they'll be back in in a minute. But she said, Carolyn, I kind of look at it this way. She said, I tell my girls. Now, if you do this, this is going to be the punishment. This is going to be the restriction. And she said, if my girls go out and do it, she said. Ultimately, they're the ones that were responsible for the judgment and the punishment that they had to endure. It wasn't me. I I was the enforcer. She said, I was just the enforcer of the punishment, even though I didn't want to be. But my word had gone out there. If you do this, then this is what's going to happen to you. And she said, I had to be the enforcer. And I said, I can see that. Don't you know it breaks God's heart that day when that comes that He has to be the enforcer? To say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Look at the the virgins, the story of the the 10 virgins that uh, they had their lamps. The bridegroom's cry went out. Five had enough oil and had extra left over that they were able to go in. What about the other five? He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Amen. Oh, my goodness. I want to be have oil in my lamp, and I want to have extra. I want to have extra. Hallelujah. I want to have extra. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Commit sin to be lawless. That is, the sinner breaks God's law in this way. Lawlessness Is a rejection of God. Satan, who models the ultimate rejection of God, will one day empower the Antichrist, called the lawless one, who rises to power, will be in accordance with how Satan works. Many will stand before Christ, claiming a connection with him that exists only in their own minds. They will rehearse their good deeds done in his name, only to hear Jesus declare them to be workers of lawlessness, whom Christ never knew. At that time, those who practice sin will be cast into the blazing furnace, while those who are covered by the righteousness of Christ will shine like the sun, Matthew 13. Jesus will have the ultimate victory and will eliminate lawlessness or sin forever. The Bible connects lawlessness or sin and rebellion against God with his need for God's forgiveness. God's righteousness is imputed to us at salvation, and God forgives us of our sin. Now, Definition for the word lawless, a noun, it means a state of disorder or a disregard for the law. I have two thoughts on it. Oh, this is where my notes were for Lindsay. Um, those who lack this foundation will surely slip over to the fear of man, and we will ultimately serve whom we fear. If we fear God, we will obey him under pressure. If we fear man, we will yield to man especially under pressure and drift towards the fleshly desires, which leads to sin. To yield to the flesh will ultimately lead to serious consequences. So if we lack a conscious understanding of of eternal judgment and punishment, we will lack a certain measure of the fear of the Lord. For the judgment of Christ are indeed one aspect of the fear of the Lord. I want to show you this. This is. I want to take it out of my notes so I can show it to you because I didn't get it put on the, the board. This is how Jesus described hell. Can you see this? Jesus described hell. And I want to read to you what Jesus described hell as. Fire, everlasting fire, eternal damnation, hell fire, damnation, damnation of hell, resurrection of damnation, furnace of fire, the fire... That shall never be quenched. The fire is not quenched. Where their worm dieth not. Wailing and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Torments. Tormented in the flames. Place of torment. Outer darkness. Everlasting punishment. Look at all the scriptures. There are too many to even for me to... You know, it's just repetitive, all of that. But... Who was it that gave this to us? Jesus. Jesus. So we're without excuse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's our foundation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalms 111.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, A good understanding. Have all those who do His commandments, His praise endures forever. Holy fear is the key for a sure and solid foundation. It's the key. What is the fear of the Lord? Is it to be scared of Him? Absolutely not. How can we have intimacy with the Lord, which is His earnest desire? If we are afraid of Him. God came to reveal Himself to Israel, to have fellowship with them, as He had with Moses, but they all ran back and refused to draw near. Moses said to the people in Exodus twenty twenty, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you. I had never knew there were so many scriptures in the word of God on fear that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. That's why fear is before us. So we may not sin. We fear the eternal punishment. We fear going to a devil's hell for all of eternity. I just read, and I I think I brought them just to show them to you. Oh my goodness, I've read so many books in the last six weeks. This is an old one. I'm going to order it in the new cover. But it's a divine revelation of hell. She went to hell for weeks, days, 30 or 40 days. And then after she went to hell, and when you read this, it's going to paint a picture of hell on the inside of you where you don't want to go. And then she, God took her to heaven. And she was in heaven for as many days as she was in hell. And this is the place you want to go. Journey to heaven. This is the place you want to go. So you might want to order these books. These are, these are just phenomenal. If I would had time, I would have ordered them, ordered them all for you. But Exodus twenty twenty, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be with you so that you may not sin. Rather, Moses differentiates between being afraid of God and the fear of the Lord. There is a difference. The one who is afraid of God has something to hide. Recall what Adam did when he disobeyed in the garden. He hid from the presence of God. On the other hand, the one who fears God is afraid to be away from him. He runs from disobedience. The fear of the Lord is to honor, esteem, value, respect, and reverence him above anything or anything else. It is to love what he loves and hate what he hates. What is important to him is important to us. What is not important to him is not important to us. When we fear him, we will tremble at his word, which is to obey him instantly. Oh, that was one of the things we tried to teach the girls from the scripture, where it says, obey your parents instantly, quietly and instantly. And they were pretty good at it, I have to say. Obey Him instantly when it doesn't make sense, when it hurts, when we don't see the benefits and we see it to completion. So yes, the manifestation of the fear of the Lord is obedience to His Word, obedience to His ways and obedience to His laws. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Christians would not backslide if they had the fear of the Lord firmly planted in their hearts. We wouldn't slip or drift away from a steadfast devotion to Jesus. We wouldn't take his word for granted or treat it casually. We wouldn't flirt with sin, which causes believers' hearts to harden and eventually fall away. We would always know that what is done and spoken in secret would be proclaimed publicly at the judgment seat of Christ. Hear what God said to Jeremiah about the New Testament people. That's us. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way and that they may fear me. And I love it. That they may fear me forever, it says. For the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, but I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. So that they will not depart from me. Paul tells us, Cult, work out, cultivate, carry out to the full and fully complete your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling, self-distrust with serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, timidly shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Jesus. Notice God says, fear me forever that they will not depart from me. We carry out and complete our salvation with reverential fear and trembling. So let's keep this under the awareness that every thought, every word, every deed will be made manifest at the judgment. Having the conscious keeps us humble, cautious, sober-minded, tender, aware of temptation, keeps us uh, uh, ready to obey, always keeping things uh, in our forefront that please God and not doing things that displease Him. Notice that Paul says... Uh, That we fully complete or finish our salvation with love and kindness. The fear of the Lord gives strength to to not fall away, but His grace gives us the ability to live this life. Consider Paul's words to the Romans. He discussed how Israel's falling away resulted in the Gentile salvation. He called Israel the natural branches, and the New Testament Gentile believers were the wild branches. Hear what God said through the Apostle Paul. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Notice he doesn't say, do not be haughty, but love. No, he refers to the fear of God. Why? You'll again see in the next two verses, it's what gives us the strength to continue in his love. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will all be cut off. We, the believers, are to consider the goodness, the love, and the severity, the judgment of God. If we do not fear God, we will not continue in his goodness, and we will be cut off. So, the fear of God keeps us from coming up short and by falling away. The love of God, on the other hand, keeps us from legalism which also destroys intimacy with God. Our love for God also fills our emotions and our intentions and keeps them passionate and accurate. We must have both the great forces of love and fear in our lives to maintain a healthy relationship. For this reason, Paul called God our Heavenly Father. He called him Abba, meaning Daddy. So there's also the fear and there's love. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that wonderful? He is love, but also he is just and a holy judge. Do not fear him is to lack enduring stability. And Jesus repeatedly said, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, I'm not going to share any of that. I want to go. I want to just show you a few things. And then I want to get into something else my next few minutes. I didn't have time. 44 Bible verses on eternal, eternal judgment. Oh, wow. 44 Bible verses on eternal judgment. Then I have a whole teaching on what did Jesus say about hell, okay? Now this is what I can't wait to get into. This is going to cheer you up a little bit. Okay, I'm going to end with a good note. The baby's going to be here and powdered it and dressed it and... We all get to hold it now. (laughs) Revivals and awakenings. Hallelujah. Revivals and awakenings. 1720s, 1740s that occurred during the colonial era is one of the most famous movements in the history of American Christianity. Many of our first settlers on the eastern seaboard came here inflamed with the gospel and hungry for religious liberty. For the early New Englanders, religious And social history were inseparable. In the 1960s, oh my goodness, the pilgrims came with a fire in their heart for a world where they could worship the Lord without any hindrances or restraints. The colonies were, according to one historian, the most Protestant, Reformed, and Puritan commonwealth in the world. America's oldest universities were founded in New England in 17th and 18th centuries, most of them with an Emphasis on training ministers of the gospel. Like I said, we've come a long way since the original founders. Now in 1600s, the spiritual and moral condition of the colonies declined at a rate that alarmed genuine believers. But in 1720s and 40s, God unleashed a small revival in New Jersey that would eventually blaze to the rest of the colonies and would change history. Revivals began to spread all up and down the eastern seaboard. The flame was fanned from New England pastor Jonathan Edwards. He is best known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the most famous sermon in American history. Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon on Sunday, July 8, 1741, while ministering in a tiny town in Connecticut, a group of women, I want you to get this. This is what I wanted to get into, and I may not be able to get into much of this. But a group of women had spent the previous night praying all night long for a revival. When he rose to speak, he announced his text was from Deuteronomy 32, 35. Their foot shall slip in due time. The hellfire and brimstone approach was a departure from his normal style of preaching. He spoke softly and simply, warning and unconverted that they were dangling over hell like a spider over a fire. O sinners, consider the fearful danger that you are in. And unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering, so weak that they won't bear their weight and their places are not seen. His voice was suddenly lost in the midst of cries and commotion from the crowd. He paused, appealing for calm. Then he concluded, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. It is reported that strong men held to pews and post feeling they were sliding into hell. Others trembled uncontrollably and rolled on the floor. Throughout the night, cries of men and women rose in the village as people begged God to save them. Five hundred were converted that evening. Five hundred were converted, uh, sparking a revival that swept thousands into the kingdom of God. And it brought us great ministers like John Wesley and his Methodists uh, were in similar revivals in England and the powerful George Whitfield was traveling back and forth between America and England using his powerful voice to save thousands of sinners. It is said that without amplification, his words would carry in the wind for a mile and reach 30,000 sets of ears. Yes, thousands of converts filled the colonies and our oldest universities were founded in the 17th and 18th century to train young men in preaching the gospel. Harvard, truth, Yale, light and truth, Princeton, under God's power, she flourishes. Brown, in God we hope. Columbia, in Thy light shall we see light. Dartmouth, the mouth of one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Baylor. Uh, Texas Christian University, they've all gone so far from Christ. So we've got to be that group of women that get on our knees and men get on your knees with us. And let's cry out, believe God for a revival to hit planet earth like we had once before. Sadly, all the original New England universities have abandoned their gospel beginnings. Historian Richard Rice Lacey, Jr. wrote, The course of events which led to the Declaration of Independence, the enthusiasm and the constancy which finally eventuated in the victory of the colonies, would not have been possible without this happening between 1775 and 1788 had there been no Great Awakening. So after the Revolutionary War, Christianity in America spiraled spiraled into another decline— As people plunged into the business of building a new nation, they neglected their spiritual well-being. Large numbers of people moved inland and began populating the Appalachian Mountains west of the Blue Ridge, and that was called the American Frontier then, where few churches existed. People drifted away from the Lord, and and, uh, society became godless again. But another revival came. Oh, and it first stirrings of the second great awakening her, happened in a Hamden Sydney college in Virginia when a few students locked themselves in a room for fear of other students and began praying for a revival. This created a near riot and the college president showed up to investigate. After inviting the Christian students to his office, he joined them in prayer. And within a short time, more than half the student body had been converted. As thousands of converts filled the colonies, new theological training colleges opened up. Uh, oh, I gave you the list. The revival spread to other campuses and became a forerunner. What occurred shortly on the American frontier in the 1800s, plain spoken evangelists like Reverend James McGready began holding brush arbor meetings in southern Kentucky. Crowds materialized in unprecedented numbers. Thousands. Upon thousands clogged the roads. Tremendous conviction of sin broke out with people weeping and wailing as they found God. The most famous of these camp meetings occurred in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And Daniel Boones, the one who invited him to come. This is an eyewitness account by James B. Finley. James B. Finley. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time. Some on stumps, others on wagons. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy. In the most piteous accents... While others were shouting more loudly, while witnessing these scenes of peculiarly strange sensations such as I had never felt before, came upon me. My heart began to beat trem- Tumultuously. my knees trembled, my lips quivered, and I felt as though I would fall to the ground. A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of my mind. At times, it seemed as if all sin I had ever committed in my life was vividly brought up in the array before my terrified imagination. And under their awful pressure, I felt as though I must die or get relief. Finley was so overcome that he left to find a nearby tavern so he could settle his nerves with a brandy. He slept that, late that night in a nearby barn and the next morning mounted his horse to return home. But en route, he was gloriously converted and later beca- became a traveling Methodist minister. <laughs> Among the results of the second great awakening, men arose in circuit-riding preachers. Oh, those are my relatives! And those are Jerry's relatives, circuit-riding preachers, our old uncles and aunts. And they all rode those old mules and preached the gospel in those brush arbors. Hallelujah. Charles Finney, Peter Cartwright, too numerous to name, but the Holy Spirit had a wider field in mind. In 1806, some students at Williams College took shelter in a haystack to avoid a thunderstorm. And there they joined in prayer and committed themselves to go into all the world wherever God might lead. Under a haystack, the birth of the modern missionary movement can be tracked back to the haystack prayer meeting, it says. From this great awakening, a flood of humanitarian causes flooded like river currents, including prison reform, child labor laws, women's rights, rescue missions, Thousands of organizations spring up to advance education. Temperance, world peace, Sabbath observance, overseas evangelism. It's gave birth to the American Bible Society, the American Sunday School, American Board of Commissioners, Foreign Missions, American Tract Society, American Temperance Society, Home Mission Society. It just goes on and on and on. The moves of God, which began in the 1820s, have good and lasting effects on the general republic. The pattern was that when older saints who had experienced an earlier, earlier outpouring saw that the young people were drifting, they would pray another move of God in. So I want to tell you, this is what's caused this to rise up on the inside of me. When I watch all these Instagrams and all this stuff and I see everything that's around me as a grandmother it's almost 70 years old to see a whole generation is lost and going to hell. Steve, they are, even those that are going to church come to church for an hour and they leave the doors and go out and live the world like the rest of the world. that 's the ten virgins, the five with oil and the five that are not. There we are. We can't let our kids go live that way. We can't let our kids go live this any old way they want to. Yeah. We, as the parents and the grandparents, are going to, we see the need. We're going to have to get on our knees again and pray this revival in for our children, for our children, because we love them. They can't go live like the world, they have to not be like the world. All right. 1850s, 1860s. After some years, the Passion Revival died again. America sank once again into spiritual lethargy and godlessness. 1980 and 1857, another national revival. Oh, my goodness. This was called the Fulton Street Revival, the Businessman's Revival, Prayer Meeting and Layman's Revival. Almost no one came to this uh, sept- September 23rd. 18. 18- I'm trying to speed up, but I'm going to stop and go back to this. In 1857, in a Dutch Reformed church building on Fulton Street, New York, almost no one came to these first meetings. But listen at this. But within a few months, more than 50,000 people a day were gathered for prayer all over New York. The revival spread from one city to the next, to Cleveland, to Detroit, to Chicago, to Cincinnati, and between one and two million people were estimated to have found Christ as their Savior. One story of particular interest occurred during the time a harbor pilot who was a Christian boarded a European cargo ship to guide it into port in New York. He told the captain and crew about the revival, and a strange but powerful sense of conviction gripped those on the ship. By the time it docked, most of the crew had given their lives to Christ. At the height of the revival, offices and stores across the nation closed for prayer at noon. Newspapers spread the story and even telegraph companies set aside certain hours during which businessmen could wire one another with the news of the revival. Even during the Civil War, when it uh, tore the nation apart, God's spirit was still at work. Major revivals broke out in both armies between 100,000 to 200,000 Union Army soldiers and approximately 150,000 Confederate troops were converted to Christ. Sometimes churches helped preaching and praying services 24-hour a day, and chapels could not accommodate the soldiers wanting to get inside. Then in 1864, uh, a great revival occurred among Robert E. Lee's forces in the fall of 1863 and the winter of 1864, during which some 7,000 soldiers were converted to Christ. These revivals in the middle of the Civil War birthed the ministry of military chaplains, which was one of the first being the young man by the name of Dwight L. Moody. He and other distributed millions of tracts, preached thousands of sermons, and baptized countless converts. Out of this revival came the gospel era of Dwight L. Moody and Fanny Crosby and the birth of new songs, with millions singing warm and heart-lifting gospel songs like Revive Us Again and Blessed Assurance. In the 1900s, despite revival fires among the troops and the ministry of the 19th century evangelists, the lamp of the church dimmed again. Then one of the greatest revivals in Christian history erupted in the first decade of the 20th century. The person most associated with bringing this Welsh revival to the world was a young coal miner by the name of Evan Roberts. He became so hungry for a move of God, he would lock himself away for days Praying for a move of God, he would not come out until he felt God. Only 17 people showed up for his first sermon, but by the end of the week, 60 people had been converted and a revival broke out. Within three months, 100,000 converts were added to the church in Wales. All across the nation, theaters closed, jails emptied, churches filled. Soccer matches were canceled to avoid conflict with the revival services. Welsh miners were so thoroughly converted that their ponies and mules had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. Thousands thronged to the churches that he spoke in all over England, Scotland, Ireland, and the continent of America. When he did speak, his messages were quiet and simple, obedience to Jesus, complete consecration to his service, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then allowing ourselves to be ruled by him. The revival spread through England, Scotland, Scandinavia, throughout Europe. Accounts of the history of the Christianity in South Africa, India, Korea, China. Report revival fires ignited everywhere. Indonesia, numbers of Christians, triple thousands, came to Christ in Japan. Brazil, the Baptist experienced the equivalent of 25 years of growth in three years from 1905 to 1907. In America, the Methodists of Philadelphia reported 10,000 conversions in a four-month period. In Atlantic City, so many people were saved that uh, some reports could only find 50 or so people among the population of 60,000 that did not profess Christ. It is believed that in New England, more people were added to the church in April of 1905 than any other record. On t- uh, on other time on record Half the students of Rutgers University Were swept into the Bible studies And 70% of the students at Pris- Princeton Gave their heart to the Lord Oh, I just at Albury College, four male students met in private room to pray, and about 10 o'clock that night, the Holy Spirit seemed to enter the room. Other students came running, and few slept that night. The next morning, the revival spread all over the campus like a tidal wave, and for three days, all classes were suspended as students got their lives right with God. An awakening hit uh, Seattle Pacific College on December nineteenth, nineteen 1905, and uh, It was hard for for the participants to describe, but students gathered, and wave after wave of blessings, billow after billow of divine glory, rolled over the entire congregation. So great was the power of God that the unsafe, when unable to resist, the meeting continued long after midnight. Portland, Oregon had such a visitation of the Spirit that the occasion is still called Portland's Pentecost. In Atlanta, stores, factories, offices, even the Supreme Court closed so people could attend prayer meetings. In Louisville, the press reported thousands of conversions and 58 leading businesses uh, closed at noon for prayer meetings. In Colorado, the state legislature, Colorado, doesn't Colorado need prayer? Colorado state legislature suspended its proceeding so members could attend prayer meetings. Colorado is one of the most ungodly states in the nation. Anyway, in California, the Azusa Street Revival, of which began in 1906, changed the face of Christianity in America and the world by initiating the Pentecostal movement. In state after state throughout America, revival spread like wildfire even to the most remote areas. While the world has not experienced such a global history-altering revival since that time, but we are due for another one. We are due for another one. Occasional revival-like movements did mark the years of the 20th century following World War II. Examples of those were an outbreak of Christian ministries that shaped the remainder of the century, and among those were Dr. Oral Roberts, Dr. Billy Graham, Amy Simple McPherson, Catherine Kuhlman, the list is just, it just goes on and on and on. And we're so privileged to have these two wonderful people with us today. 1970s, our nation once again fell on hard times morally and spiritually. Those that are my age can never forget the dark days. You know, I've been so grieved over what I've seen so much lately on TV and when I begin doing this study and research again to present to you, it's nothing new. It's what we saw in the 60s. It's only seven times worse now. The dark days of the 1960s when President John F. Kennedy was shot. 1963, the Cold War of the United States against USR, USSR. Oh, that's happening again. We're seeing it all happen again. I went to bed last night, and I woke up again this morning, interceding for President Trump. This week, one whole day, I spent doing nothing but writing prayers for President Trump. I sat for hours and hours and hours writing prayers for him. One of them is that he would uh, Mm -hmm. keep his mouth closed. You know, I can give you the scripture if you want it, but that he would keep his mouth closed and not tweet so much. But, uh... (laughs) I started praying last night when I went to bed, when I got up this morning, because you know where he is right now for 12 days. He's in China, South Korea. He's going to Guam. He's going to all those places. You guys, he's just a matter of miles. And if the jerk would kill his own brother, two women put, you know killing him, how much more would he plot and plan to try to kill our president while he's over there? So we need to intercede. Let's do it right now. Father, as a body of Christ, right now, we come together to intercede for our president and for all of his family and all the members of of the military and all the people that are there with him. We lift them up, Father, that you protect them and that you put a hedge of protection around them in the name of Jesus and any plots or plans that have been devised by Satan to cause harm and destruction. We bind them right now in the name of Jesus and we call them inoperative. They will not come to fruition. They will not work against our president and the leaders of our government and of our military. In the name of Jesus, we declare you foiled. We declare you defeated. We declare that you are bound in an operative in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we saw President John F. Kennedy was shot in 1963. The Cold War, the United States against the USSR, and I have so much I want to teach on that, and I can't. And I've got five minutes. Okay, and will give me for self five minutes. Oh, so Everything is being fulfilled. It's like chess pieces being moved around. You see that USSR is great friends with Iran. Oh, I have so much I wanted to read to you. But you know our former president is the one who yep. gave them the money and gave them all the supplies to be able to build a nutri, what's the word? neutron <inaudible> nuclear bomb. Thank you. Thank you. So all that. But we're watching it all being fulfilled. And China will eventually play into it. China, Russia, and all the the... Persia, which is now Iran and all those nations, we can see it all coming to pass. We can see all the friendships and all the inner, and we've known forever when Russia, the walls came down and we were able to get in there and preach the gospel. Don't you all know it's just going to be for a season and then those walls are going to go back up and you won't get to get into that nation. So we're being able to see all that right now. Oh, it, it oh, it's fun to to see it, to see it happening. Okay. Radical conflict raged in the South in 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, followed by the tragic slain of Bobby Kennedy. Riots erupted in the streets. The Vietnam War ripped apart the fabric of our national life. Richard Nixon was elected president. Oh, dear God, help us. Uh, Students took over their university campus. Bombs went off. People were killed. Institutions of all kinds were attacked. Exactly what's happening now. Hustle drugs, I can't say hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic, I'm not saying it right, were popularized, long hair, short skirts, transcendental meditation, Eastern mysticism. All these forces were swallowing up an entire generation. Watergate sent out politics into chaos and students battled the National Guard on college campuses, sometimes with tragic results. From San Francisco emerged um, Haight-Ashbury District, New York, Greenwich Village. Here, the long-haired youth adopted countercultural values, turned to drugs, dropped out of society, and protested the establishment. In 1968, a Christian couple who saw the need began to intercede and pray and got on their knees, opened up their home, and opened up a, a, an evangelistic coffee house called The Living Room. Another Christian coffee house is soon up and up all and down the West Coast. Ministers started, souls were saved, and the winds of revival swept thousands of hippies into the Pacific Ocean to be baptized. And they came to be known as the Jesus People. And on January the 1st, 1971, Billy Graham rode through Pasadena as a grand marshal of the Tournament of Roses. And a sea of newly converted hippies surrounded him, pointing their index finger heavenward and shouting one way, this causes me to tear up. Because this is our generation. did yeah. yeah, small... deeply move Reverend Billy Graham, and he committed himself to encourage these young people who were seeking Christ out of despair, and he called them the Jesus generation. <laughs> Look, magazine reported it in February 7th, 1971. Edition, a crusade has caught hold in California. And it shows every sign of sweeping east and becoming a national preoccupation. It's an old-time Bible-toting, witness-giving kind of revival. And the new evangelists are the young. The magazine continued, The Jesus Movement seems to be springing up simultaneously in many places, and often in the last places you would think to look. But maybe, before maybe, because this is California, this should be the first place to look. Let's start praying and believing for that. In Orange County, an entire motorcycle gang converted. Dozens of go-go clubs throughout the state have been turned into religious coffee houses where kids go to sing and pray. Religious clubs are forming on the campuses of California. Stanford Berkeley and UCLA. There was a revival. There's no getting around it. Jesus is rising in California. He's the latest movement, the last thing, latest thing to groove on. <laughs> Time Magazine featured a purple Jesus on its cover encircled by a rainbow bearing the words, The Jesus Revolution. The magazine described Christ as a notorious leader of an underground liberation movement who bore the appearance of a typical hippie type with long-haired beard, robe, and sandals. He was changing lives, thousands of lives. They became known as the Jesus Freaks, as they were sometimes called flooded churches. Congregations began to welcome them and encourage them to play their guitars, enjoy their folk sounds, and write new songs to the Lord. Expo 1972, six-day gathering in Dallas brought 80,000 young people. Yesterday's Jesus people are today's church leaders. Their passion for Jesus has never dimmed. Fueled by the fire of this revival in those days, an army of Christian workers have labored for a generation. America cannot be saved by politics. It cannot be saved by Republicans or Democrats or independents. While we need wise and godly national leaders, the real answer to our problem is not political, but spiritual. In his book, The Secret of Christian Joy... The greatest need for America is an old-fashioned revival. Heaven-born, God-sent revival. Throughout the history of the church, when clouds have hung the lowest, when sin has seemed the blackest, and faith has been the weakest, there have always been a faithful few who have not sold out to the devil or bowed their knee to Baal, who have feared the Lord and thought upon His name and have not forsaken the assembling of themselves together. There they have besought the Lord to revive his work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the fears and the tears and in the wrath to remember God. God has always answered such supplications, filling each heart with his love, rekindling each soul with revival fire. With revival fire. It's only going to happen... If we do our part. And I didn't even get into us doing our part. So if we do our part, and that's a whole sermon on prayer. Until we do it, the world's going to continue just as it is. But I don't want it to continue just as it is. Jerry, come up here and tell them just a few minutes about your part in that great revival out there happening in California. That was just Some wonderful
0: times in our lives. That's when it all happened for me. 1969, I surrendered my life to the Lord. And uh, shortly after that, Brother Copeland came back to Shreveport to preach where Carol and I grew up. And by the direction of the Lord, he singled me out and said um, the Lord had told him to pay my way to go to California. And that I was to stay there as long as the Lord directed me to, and he sent me to train under a man by the name of Dave Malkin. Dave was a uh, businessman, a very successful businessman. He was part of Crusades for Christ. He got filled with the Holy Spirit, and he had such a burden, such a desire for the young people of our generation. And he began uh, winning just one-on-one, young men and women to the Lord, started having a prayer meeting and a Bible study in his home, and uh, eventually it grew to over 100 people, 100 young people, and that's where Brother Copeland sent me. And our first meeting was at Pismo Beach. 144,000 hippies showed up, 4th of July, uh, Pismo Beach, for drug parties, dune buggy races, and what they didn't know they showed up for was a major outpouring of the Holy Ghost and I got to be part of that. I was part of that Jesus movement. I was part of baptizing thousands of young people in the Pacific Ocean. I got to be part of uh, speaking on later later, not that same trip, but later. I spoke in the Jesus rallies, Jesus people rallies and U- uh, University of Southern California, uh, UCLA, University of Colorado, uh, Texas, I mean, uh, Arkansas Tech. I got to be in all of those famous Jesus movement rallies right on the campuses of some of the major universities in this nation. And I'm believing to see it again. Praise God. Amen. I'm believing to see that again. Amen. Hallelujah. The revival days are not over. They are here again amen. Praise God And you and I are the people that God wants to use amen. Can you say amen? amen This morning as I um, arose and, and began to get ready to come over to the service I had the Lord lead me to uh, Ephesians chapter 5 Or chapter 4 rather And I want to read a couple of verses to you In verse 13 Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, here's a verse he pointed out in particular. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Come February of next year, uh, it will mark my 49th year in the ministry. And I have watched over the years, particularly over the last 20 years, the body of Christ falling for winds of doctrine. Preachers falling for winds of doctrine. Some of these preachers are very well known. Some of them, ministries exceed beyond America, around the world. And yet some of them have fallen away from the truth and have begun to preach winds of doctrine he said we are not to be carried about or carried away with winds of doctrines but we are to speak the truth in love I believe my wife spoke the truth in love this morning amen she didn't pull any punches and I think there needs to be more sermons where we don't pull any punches amen we can preach without being condemning but at the same time, we can preach with conviction, yes. speaking the truth in love. And then one other scripture that he led me to was Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with, every, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. He's not talking to sinners here. He's talking to believers. Let believers lay aside their weights. Things that slow us down. Things that trip us up. And the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That word beset... Uh, kind of jumped off the pages into my spirit this morning. And I looked the word up and it means the sins that seem to surround us. That enclose us. That hem us in. That besiege us. That press on all sides against us. That entangle us. And once again, we're talking about believers. Yes. There are believers that are not dealing with sins that have beset them. Today, it's easy to just sweep it under the rug. It's easy to just pass it over. And it's real easy to say, oh, I'm under grace. Grace does not give us the right to live any way we want to live. That's a big mistake. A big mistake. That is a wind of doctrine. Grace thank God, is what got us in. Amen. Grace is what gave us the privilege of a relationship with Almighty God. Amen. 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 But grace does not give us the liberty to serve the flesh. Amen. Amen. And so, I believe there are, there are people in here this morning. That need to deal with some of these sins that have so easily beset us. So I want us to stand right now, and uh, cast. Would you come and uh, just the praise and worship team? Just come and minister unto the Lord, and we're going to dismiss here in just a moment. And this is not to uh, embarrass anybody. It's not to condemn anybody. But I think it's time that we quit playing church. It says, lay aside, lay aside the things that so easily beset you, things that entangle you. Carolyn mentioned this morning that uh, so many ministers, in fact, I was in a hotel uh, not too awfully long ago. And uh, when I was checking in, the receptionist at the, at the desk said, uh, are you one of those preachers who watches the uh, X-rated movies? I said, well, no, ma'am, I'm not. She said, well, we have a number of them that do. And I thought, well, (laughs) I certainly don't want to be mixed up with that bunch. But, you know, if you don't have any fear of the Lord, reverence for God, then it's easy to get caught up in that kind of thing. I remember back in the early 70s, I was in Chicago, and I was preaching there in a meeting. And I was there for several days, almost almost a week, every night. And when I checked in this Holiday Inn, this was the first time I, I'd ever been in a hotel where they showed movies, X-rated movies. And I didn't know that. And I just turned on the television one night after the service, and I just turned it on, and there, right in front of me, were, was a couple involved in the sexual act and I was shocked I couldn't believe it. and I picked up the phone and I called the front desk and I said do you people have any idea what's coming across your televisions in here in these rooms she said what I said there's pornography she said oh you, you, you can only get that if you have a special key I said I don't have a special key I didn't ask for a special key and it just came across my television." And I turned it off, and I went to bed. I'll never forget the thought. It planted a thought. I wonder what they're doing now. And I called Carolyn, and I said, pray for me. I just experienced something I've never experienced since I've been born again. But the pull of sin just that, just that, I mean, I didn't see it for more than 15 seconds, but that thought, I wonder what they're showing now. I wonder what they're doing now. And I got up and I called Carol and I said, pray for me. I don't want this pulling on me. That's how easy, how subtle it is, that you can get caught up in that. You know, I, I love sports. I love, I love watching sports and uh, I particularly like boxing and some of the great boxing matches comes on some of the channels like HBO or Showtime or something and I, and I have those channels but I have them so I can watch those sporting events and sometimes when I'm home and, and I get to watch those well I'll go get ready for it and I'll turn the television on and maybe it's not quite time for it, the sporting event to come on. And maybe some movie is showing just before that. And you might catch the very end of it. And, you know, people are doing what they're not supposed to be doing. <laughs> and I'm amazed at how subtle the devil is. You know, I, I used to go to all these major, major championship boxing matches. And most of them are done in Las Vegas. And I had a friend that, uh, who was a professional boxer that I led to the Lord. He was from California, and he'd invite me to come to his training camp. And when his manager wasn't training him, I was mentoring him in the Word. He'd come out of the ring, and we'd sit down and have Bible study. And he'd invite me to come and watch him fight. And he got hurt really bad uh, and lost his championship and almost died as a result of getting hurt in the ring. And he had to retire from boxing. But then he went to work for one of the major promoters. And he'd call me, and he eventually married this promoter's daughter. And so uh, he'd call me every time there was a major championship fight. Brother Jerry, I got ringside seats for you, free of charge. Are you coming? I'd say, that must be God. <laughs> and I'd go to these major championship fights. I mean, if I mentioned some of the guys, you'd, you'd recognize their names. But they were in Vegas. And uh, so I'd fly to Vegas. And I'm going to watch a fight. That's all I'm going to do. I don't gamble. I've never been tempted by one of them one-armed bandits. Uh, I've never been tempted to play cards. And there was a time in my life where I gambled a lot, especially when I was in college. And, uh, but after I got saved, that, that wasn't a pull on me anymore. But when you go to Caesar's Palace for a major championship fight, When you check in, you have to walk through the casino to get to the elevators to get to your room. I wonder why they did that. So I walked through the casino hoping that I wouldn't get recognized. Nobody would know me there. And I got about halfway to my elevator. Hey, Brother Jerry. I didn't even turn around. I just kept walking. Hey, Brother Jerry. He said it about three times. Finally, I turned around and I'm trying to see who it is in here knows I'm here. And it was a dealer at the blackjack table. He was waving. Brother Jerry, I just got saved. I watch you on television. Pray. I want a better job. I want out of this place. I said, help him, Lord. And I went to the elevator. (laughs) And I thought, okay. Now, Paul made this statement. When I was in, when I got to my room, I was looking so forward to this championship fight. I'd even got there a day early where I could go to the weigh-in and everything, you know. And uh, when I got to my room that night, these words came up in my spirit. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient for me. That word expedient means profitable. Paul said, all things are lawful. There's nothing wrong in me going to a boxing match. It's not lawful to me. But it became unprofitable. Because of who I am. And because of what I stand for. And because I'm known. I'm known worldwide. And I can't be seen in places like that anymore. Because... If I'm in a casino then they'll Assume you're gambling you're Drinking if I'm there alone They could assume that I've got another woman You know so I finally Made the decision God didn't make me I made the decision on my own I'm not going anymore I'll Just watch it on television You know there comes a point where you have to make Some decisions Everything's lawful Unto us But not everything's expedient It's not profitable. Amen. And I just sense in my spirit the Lord saying this morning, let's deal with some things that are no longer profitable for us. Amen. Sins that so easily beset us, that entangle us, that have a grip on us. And you probably, just like I was there in that hotel in Chicago, I was totally innocent. I wasn't looking to find a pornographic movie on television. I was there to preach. I was there to minister to people. But I saw how subtle the devil was and just just getting a little thought in my mind. That's where sin starts. A thought. Amen. So this morning, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. But I think we should deal with some things. How many of you long to hear those words? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. You know, in the church that Carolyn grew up in and in the church I started going to uh, when we first married, they had an altar. You remember when churches had altars? People came to pray. Oh, we don't have one in this church. I wish we did. When we started it we did I don't know where those benches went Somebody removed them I don't know Nobody asked me I guess because I'm not here very often They just moved them (laughs) But We used to have altars in this church Well we don't have an altar But we have a stage Well this is old time brother well, maybe we need to get back to some of the old time ways where people actually come and kneel and spend time in the presence of God and make things right. You know, I, I remember in some of those early services that Carolyn would take me to the Life Tabernacle, Steve Munns, you know, was part of that. and uh, Brother Jack Moore. He wasn't the most eloquent speaker. In fact, very seldom did I really get something out of his preaching. But he loved God. And he loved people. And he wanted God's best for the people. And he'd give that invitation to just come up and pray at the altar for a moment. Man, we saw moves of God. We saw the Holy Ghost fall on people. Amen. Amen. So could we do that this morning? If there's something in your heart that you need to deal with, don't sweep it under the rug anymore. Just something in your heart. We don't even know what we don't even want to know what it is. Just come and kneel at the altar and just pray and seek the Lord and repent if necessary and get in the presence of God before we dismiss this service this morning. Come on, let's sing that song. I surrender all. The rest of you, just lift your hands and just pray in the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Father. I
1: surrender all to you.
0: Everybody sing it out. Father, well, take a deep breath. Say, isn't it good to be free? Amen. Praise God. A vessel of honor meet for the master's use. That's what we all want to be. Amen. Say, I want to be a vessel of honor meet for the master's use and thank him right now for loving you so much. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much hallelujah amen just